Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. You can listen on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, on the Times Radio app, or at Times.radio, so you've got no excuse for not listening. But here on the podcast, we bring you the best of the show, which includes our big thing, our big feature, but we always kick off with our two favourite columnists. And on a Tuesday, the columnist panel is Finkelvich. It's Daniel Finkelstein and David Iwanovich. Let's talk about lockdown because we've got to. Um, but this particular thing, this, this sort of um, when will we decide that we've had enough of lockdown? What will the criteria be? And this slight obsession with constantly asking, when are we going to go into lockdown? As soon as we're in it, demand to know when we're going to get out of it. Um, what, what's the right approach to all of it? Should we just basically turn the telly off? For the next six weeks, Danny, and come back later. Well, it's certainly not, you know, it's not going to settle it. No, I don't actually think we should. I do think we need to have a discussion about this. We need to decide, uh, given that we know that, that COVID is going to be chronic, we're going to live with it, not just for now, but forever. We're going to have different variants. It's going to come back. Um, so, and we're going to have a vaccination programme. This isn't something that's going to disappear. So at some point, we have to decide what our tolerance level is, whether we are willing to live with a certain number of deaths. After all, we do every year with flu. We don't all stay in our house until we've driven flu uh, down to zero. Uh, obviously, that comparison doesn't work at all when you've got people who are not vaccinated with a massive uh, infection fatality rate, which is what we've had until now. But once those people have been vaccinated, at what point... Do we decide, well, we're willing to tolerate the illness COVID causes? And you have to have that debate. And my view right from the beginning is that the government has got to involve the whole country, including the leader of the opposition, in that debate. Do we want to drive COVID down to zero with all the costs that that involved? But it does mean that you can do uh, a tracing system if you do that. Um, what are we going to do about borders? We need to have these discussions there's no point discussing, you know, are we nearly there yet, like kids in a car, but there is a point having a discussion about what being there means. Is there a risk, David, that if we start having that discussion, that actually all the government wants us to do, and this was true of the last lockdown, last summer, and whatever else, is they just want us to abide by the rules right now. And as soon as you start having these broader conversations, it, you start creating the impression that we're, that we're through it, and we're not through it yet, and actually just shut up and do as you're told is essentially what the government's trying to say uh, but, while not trying to upset the people who would get very cross on social media and, and that sort of thing if, if they did just say shut up and do as you're told. I know I'm getting a bit of a reputation on here for being grumpy um, but I, I don't 
the, the trouble with the debate Danny's talking about is I don't want to hear what most people have to say about it at the moment. Um, <laughs> by all means, have your debate, but please, can you consult, can we confine it to people who know what they're talking about and, and can measure up what these things actually mean at the point where it matters and where we can... I mean, one of the things that we have discovered, if anything, we've discovered nothing else is that we are in a process of constant learning about this virus and that it has changed several times and changed where we go and how we respond to it and so on. Some of the uh, elements to it have remained constant, but others have changed significantly. And they've changed attitudes to, for for example, when and how you open up schools and so on. Um, Now, I'm hoping that at a certain point we get to a more kind of steady state of what, about what the behaviour of the virus is and about the those responses that are successful to it uh, and how they then work. And at that point, I'm much more happy to put my foot on the ball and say, uh, yes, OK, now let's kind of reflect upon exactly and have this discussion about uh, uh, the, time, the putative timetables and so on. But as things currently stand, we're heading towards 14 and a half million vaccinations, first doses uh, and second dose vaccinations by the uh, most of those first doses by the middle of February. At that point, we will begin to see significant reductions in hospitalizations. We will be taking stock of what new variants there are and what behaviours they've uh, uh, have happened. Some of the things that we've begun to discover, like regional lockdowns and so on, and local lockdowns may not actually help us as much as we were hoping that they did. So we'd have a question about whether or not the region is going to help. No, no debate is going to get us through that particular question. It's actually a matter of what the evidence tells us um, uh, the consequences have been. So, what I, so, so for the, what, I think what I'm saying is... Yes, have a debate, but have it in three months or four months' time. For the meantime, mm. let us get through to well, the point of significant vaccination so that we can, uh, we, okay. we can then survey the territory in front of well, us. I'll I, I tell you where I don't quite agree with that. I, I think you're completely right that, that we can't have a debate about exactly what we do because that is dependent on things that we're still learning. For example, the transmissibility after vaccination, which is an absolutely critical piece of information we don't have. But... What we can have, I think, is a debate about the sort of broader ethical question about the balance between um, the economy and um, and transmissibility and uh, the, 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 the virus, which we've never really had. And one of the reasons we haven't had it is I think a lot of people contributing on the sort of lockdown sceptic side have said so many silly things that an important thing that they've been saying, which I've all along thought was 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 right has been missing uh be, be, drowned out by their other points which is that we need to have some sort of broad view of the health and economic consequences of lockdown in order to make a in order to make some informed judgments about the balance between freedom and lockdown um and so i do think these are discussions and calculations and alliances and uh, and and forums well, that we should be setting up now uh, we don't Danny, need to know nobody, everything before we do that but danny nobody wants a lockdown i mean there aren't there aren't people i mean i imagine there are maybe a couple of you know websites sure. where there are lockdown fetishists etc who kind of get off <laughs> on lockdown but but for most of us, we just don't. We want it over and so on. So the question is not really. Well, so I find this. So I do find this question of balance actually rather slightly irritating. There may be people on the extremes of a debate who say you can never lose a single life to anything, etc. But most people no, are not that, there. Most scientists that, are most there. Most kind of government people are not there. It's not mm, actually a real it, debate. No, it is. I don't agree with that. It is a real debate because the, the issue is whether or not 
the right thing to do is to drive the virus down to zero uh, in order that we can use a testing system because effectively no uh, no circulation of the virus is acceptable. And that is actually an argument being made in a serious way. Um, and And I think it does deserve consideration. So although it's true that people don't want lockdown, that, that people do have different questions, do have different balances, actually, between lockdown and uh, freedom. And it's worthwhile, um, you know, I, I use the word freedom, actually, I don't want to use a, a you know, because I've been on the lockdown side of it, I don't want to use a, a phrase that balances in that direction. But I, between between having restrictions and lifting them, that there, there are trade-offs to be made. And I think it's right to discuss where we as a society sit on that trade-off so that when the moment comes and the government does have to make a choice, which probably will involve non-zero numbers of deaths from COVID, uh, we have had that discussion, right? You know, I think that's worthwhile. I, th- I suppose, I think it's interesting, but, but you, you're nervous about using the word freedom. I mean, part of the reason why we're having the lockdown is to have the freedom not to be dead. I mean, yes, that's exactly. The, that's why yeah, I didn't want to use it. That's precisely that's the, the whole, reason. And I think the really interesting thing about these these sort of self styled lockdown sceptics, um, and you know you see them in the media, sometimes on other radio stations as well as in the House of Commons, is they sort of carry on as if they're the only people who don't like. They just don't like lockdown. We d- nobody like dislikes yeah. lockdowns. I don't. Uh, nobody. Um, you know I don't love the lockdown. Um, but I'm willing to accept that if you've got a thing that spreads by people spending well, time together, if you stop people from spending time together, that's what. But it's like they've got a sort of you know they've got a. Yeah. Um, uh, they're the only people who dislike the lockdown. That's basically so what lockdown skepticism is. is, is. Skeptic is now a sort of cliche word in conservative circles, and usually it means oppose, right? And yeah, and um, it doesn't mean it doesn't mean skepticism. Skepticism yeah. is is uh, when it means doubt is a reasonable um, position if taken to you know if kept in proportion. Um, mm. And uh, but it, but it, that what that must mean is that you test it against the evidence. And unfortunately, as wow. the evidence has become more apparent, their scepticism hasn't um, hasn't lifted because the scepticism yeah. is really opposition. No, I agree. I agree with that. I, I wrote the other week that actually communists would be uh, much more successful if they rebranded themselves as capitalism skeptics. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know because that sounds much more respectable. And I mean, it comes on to a point which uh, I've been thinking about, which is um, the purpose of conservative backbenchers, some of whom have kind of put themselves now in a coronavirus research group. Um, And what that means is always a bad news for the government. As soon as a group of Tory backbenchers say they're in a research group, uh, firstly, you can be sure they're not actually researching anything. Secondly, you can be sure that they're just trying to find something awkward to say to the government to make, you know, to, 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 to put some... Now, some of them will feel it, but you kind of feel that as with... Uh, when I was a, a student uh, uh, activist, we used to arrive at the beginning of each term thinking, what is our campaign going to be about this term? What's the big thing that's going to energise the student masses, etc.? And I look at these uh, Tory backbenchers, so I think there's the same kind of thing going on. What am I going to have a research group about this month, etc., to kind of give me a reason for being yeah. um, and purpose? Within, and, and then I'm going to make life really kind of miserable for the government until they actually give me a ministerial post or until there's an Completely. election or something like that. And I was wondering, Danny... Is that how you see these backbenchers? Because I just, yeah. in many ways, if I'm the government, I just wish they'd die. <laughs> no, look, first of all, obviously you're going to get in the British political spectrum, you know, 15% of members of parliament or so representing a view that's held by 15% of the of the 
of the public. Maybe it'll be a little bit more, maybe it'll be a little bit less, but you're going to get some people who take that view. Um, and it's not surprising it's in the Conservative Party, considering the kind of uh, thrust of it. Um, but but I but I'm, I take what I call a sort of game theory view, right, which is I think people take up positions um, so that to, to give themselves a kind of... Um, advantage in terms of distinctiveness uh, and in terms of not being responsible for bad consequences in the party right so this this position means that you don't you're not responsible for the consequences of lockdown right um and um that uh, the government can can kind of bear the consequences of that and you were always opposed to it people take that view and there's an interesting um the only way out of this game theory problem for the government is to change the payoffs, right? I won't go into all the uh, mathematics of it, but basically what the government has to do is make sure it's successful with its policy. Um, and so, oddly, uh, the best way of dealing with this kind of scepticism is, uh, is to ignore its advice uh, and be successful. The more you fail, uh, the more it attracts people to, um, to support strategies against you, which, oddly, if adopted, would make you fail even worse. Um, and this is this is a uh, a repeated um, uh, the, uh, dynamic across political parties and across issues. No, I just wanted to say that when I said die early, I meant in the political sense and not in the personal sense. I wish death upon sense. nobody, and hopefully that's avoided the Twitter pylon, which was about to come. <laughs> it hasn't. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry, David. I've already started it. I'm afraid while uh, Daddy was talking. Um, I do also wonder if if the the Brexit shenanigans and the way that every no mark Wally backbench MP suddenly became a sort of um, national f figure of uh, you know wisdom um, and people who we would never have heard of in a million years, whose job it was to trudge through and vote for the government in the lobbies, um, suddenly suddenly uh, got that sort of taste of publicity and and uh, a whiff of fame, and they you know so they just need to keep finding. And whether it's China or the North or coronavirus, they'll keep on doing it. Um, anyway, I'm very conscious that I want to make sure we've got time to speak about Frank Lampard, um, Danny right. in particular, because 24 hours ago, we got the news that Frank Lampard had been sacked as uh, head coach at Chelsea. You are a Chelsea fan. Um, is this yes. it? I mean, the reason this, I think this breaks out beyond just being a sports story is it is the... Is the he played for Chelsea for such a long time, and then to go back—is it—is it always a mistake to go back? Well, I, you know, I talked to him about actually about it. I, I, kn I knew he understood he understood the risks before he did it, um, and I, I thought it was a correct risk calculation. Actually, I mean, I thought this was very, very likely to happen. I think uh, I think his uh, firing represents another uh, very common but and broader political uh, phenomenon, which also affects politics, and that is that football clubs ignore regression to the mean you basically win and lose in clusters right uh, and what football clubs do is they sack you when your performance goes below expectation and it can do that for two reasons one is because your performance is genuinely below expectation and the other is because it's simply lumpy and you've had a cluster of bad results it seems to me obvious looking at Chelsea's results from the first um, part of this season that it's just had a very lumpy performance right and and um, I think that it would have ironed itself out and they've made a mistake removing somebody that I think he's a very, he's a very bright, incisive, um, forward-thinking person and coach. You know, I've got a high personal regard for him, so I think, I think they've made a, a big mistake. What Dan has just done is obviously, A, very true in most of it, and B, a way of avoiding saying that the club that he supports is run by a power-mad Russian oligarch 
who fires anybody on a kind of almost on a kind of whim uh, if they don't do what they uh, get the results that he wants within a very short period of time and has nearly no capacity to see the long term. I mean, I think most I think most non-Chelsea fans would look at uh, Abramovich and say there's a certain kind of a pattern there. Now you can say with other clubs that they may hang on to coaches too long after they fail to be successful. There was the question about whether after Ferguson, Manchester United so uh, internalised the idea that you've got to stick to the person you've got, then in that case they held on longer to David Moyes than they should have done. But on the other hand, you'd say, well, look at Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Everybody, I mean, almost everybody's been fired earlier this season in people's minds at one time, like Mikel Arteta and so on. But Solskjaer was an absolute goner, supposedly. It was going to be replaced by Maurizio Pochettino, who's now gone to Paris Saint-Germain. They've kept hold of him and Manchester United are top of the league and beat Liverpool in the FA Cup this week. That was Daniel Finkstein and David Iwanovic. Of course, you can read them both in The Times every week. Danny's column on a Wednesday, David's on a Thursday. You just need to get yourself a Times subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, are you a happy shopper? Why supermarkets are even out polling the NHS. Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson. A weekly series of in-depth interviews with high-profile figures examining how overcoming the challenges of their early lives shaped the people they've become. This week, Anne Summers CEO Jacqueline Gold talks candidly about her parents' divorce and how she coped with a shocking period of childhood sexual abuse. They say the best form of revenge is success, and I believe that. It was just turning something negative into a positive. Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson. Jacqueline Gold, in her own words. Now available as a podcast. Listen on the Times Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com ryan reynolds here from Mint mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us we brought in a reverse auctioneer which is apparently a thing Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to the Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Now... It's time for this. This is a customer announcement for all happy shoppers. There's been a surge in popularity of supermarkets. 
Gone are the days when out-of-town megastores were blamed for killing off town centres and retail diversity. Now supermarkets are even out polling the NHS. We go wild in the aisles to find out why and ask what the government could learn about logistics and customer service from the big name stores. This offer must end at 11.30. Yes, so we're going to talk about this this polling from the global communications firm Kex CNC, which asked people which institutions have performed well during the pandemic and supermarkets uh, were even outperforming the NHS. So how do they do it? And, and even what could the government learn from shops about turning around operations at a moment's notice to keep the public happy? In a moment, we'll hear from the chairman of Tesco, John Allen, about how they managed to adapt in the midst of a global pandemic. We'll also speak to uh, Tom Sass from the Institute for Government and the Times retail editor, Ashley Armstrong. Uh, but first, let's talk about that polling with James Johnson. You'll know James uh, from uh, doing our monthly uh, focus groups. Hiya, James. Good morning. And the, the interesting thing was this came up, didn't it, in our most recent focus group? And we don't always have time to use absolutely everything from the focus group. But it struck us as particularly interesting that you asked them how uh, they thought uh, supermarkets. And these are focus groups, which is a, a collection of swing voters. Uh, and you asked them uh, what they thought about supermarkets. Let's take a listen to what they had to say. Great. They deserve a lot, a lot of praise. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Why, why is that? They've not really done any steps a foot wrong, uh, as far as I'm aware. They've always had everything available. Um, they abided by all of all the uh, two meter distancing rules and stuff in the first lockdown. So yeah, I think they've done quite well. The people that work there were asked to do more than uh, than they were employed for, which uh, you know uh, to be at the forefront there. Suddenly you're you're uh, you know you're at the tills, and suddenly you're at the front line of a pandemic. I thought that was uh, really uh, impressive, and um, I think they've done a magnificent job. Morrison's have announced today that that they that they're going to stop people coming in who haven't got face masks on. That means security people. And that we, I think most of us think that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. I was just about to say, because a lot of staff, a lot, a lot of supermarket staff and stuff like that, have taken a lot of abuse and flack off people when they've asked them about masks and all this other stuff. And some of them have been assaulted and everything, which is disgusting. Mm. I know, I agree with you. But, it's not, but it, it hasn't been fair, right, for the government to rely on, on stores to ma- ma- manage it. You know, it's above their pay grade. It has yeah, to be done by security people. Yeah, I think I think the supermarkets are doing well. It's just the people going in, and I think everything's there. The the distancing, the sanitising, and everything. Um, the the wearing masks. It's just it's just people not doing it. It's a problem. Not the actual supermarkets. So that's what our focus group said. James, were you surprised by this reaction? And explain what the polling that you've you've done as well shows yes this was an example of where focus groups really are backing up the polling because um sort of research that we did last year um towards the end of last year we basically ask uh through with kex cnc um how well or badly have various institutions done in responding to the crisis and we get a net score so basically everyone's saying they've done a good job 
minus those saying they've done a bad job. And supermarkets are right at the top of that table on plus 80. And actually, strikingly, that that's even more successful than the NHS in the public's mind, which is on plus 78. Other companies do, do well as well, like online retailers, but we really do see supermarkets high up. And it seems to be because, as you heard there, people feel like they've reopened quickly, they've had you know stock available at all times, and they're doing well on enforcement as well. And this feeds into um, some more polling on uh, which companies should pay more or less tax. And obviously there's been lots of criticism, particularly of online retailers, and they've been sort of coining it in while we've all been stuck at home and ordering stuff on the internet. Uh, But supermarkets come out of that well as well. Yes, exactly. So in terms of uh, who sort of people want to see uh, pay more tax, uh, online companies uh, sort of are, are marked out for paying more tax in the future by the public, even the pharmaceutical companies, uh, you know, despite the vaccine news. But for supermarkets, very different picture, marginally more people saying they should pay less tax in future uh, rather than more. The majority of people saying their tax levels should stay the same. So I think some supermarkets earlier this year were worried that um, reports about you know, paying dividends out or um, receiving you know, business rates relief might mean it was a negative story for them in, in the press. But actually, all we see from the public is very, very strong uh, positivity. I think the only risk for supermarkets now um, is actually if they're not seen to be taking a harsh enough approach on mask wearing, for example. And we hear again and again in focus groups, real bafflement at the fact that people in supermarkets still aren't wearing masks. So I think, you know, that's the only danger area for them. But generally, uh, a very good pandemic for the supermarkets so far. Well, James Johnson, thanks so much for joining that, uh, joining us. And James will be back uh, in February with our uh, monthly focus group that we do uh, every month here on Times Radio. Let's speak now to someone very much on the on the coal face, if you like. Well, we, don't get, we, can, we can buy coal in supermarkets, I suppose. Uh, let's speak to John Allen, who's the chairman of uh, Tesco. Uh, morning, John. Morning, Matt. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. So talk us through how Tesco responded to something um, like the lockdown. I mean, you had the sort of the, the, the panic buying. You had uh, actually just people needed to buy more stuff because they weren't going to cafes and restaurants and pubs and that sort of thing. So what did Tesco have to do and, and how how great was the extra demand that you faced? Well, look, I think there were three big challenges, Matt. First of all, We wanted to protect our staff, our colleagues and our customers. And uh, we and other supermarkets have put in, you know, uh, screens around checkouts, that sort of thing. Um, Social distancing in stores, the mask wearing, which your uh, focus group referred to. Secondly, I think we felt there were some colleagues who were particularly vulnerable. We at Tesco sent 23,000 people home who were in clinically vulnerable categories. That's out of our total frontline staff of 285,000. Uh, on full pay for 12 weeks to to start with. And then thirdly, of course, was making sure that product was available. And there was some panic buying at the beginning. We limited the amounts that people could buy of individual items. And that steadied down. And we've worked very, very hard to ensure that we maintain availability. Uh, but the real heroes of this, I think, are our frontline staff, our colleagues, you know, who have worked right through the last year, ensuring that stores are open, customers are able to buy what they want and so on. And I think they've done a great job. And if this poll provides some recognition for that, that's that's terrific because they really deserve it. Were you surprised by things like uh, panic buying? It's not, it's not the sort of thing we, we tend to expect to see in, in a country like the UK. Yeah, n- not really. We had planned for it. We'd done contingency planning for 
uh, you know, all sorts of events. And we knew that panic buying was one of the potential responses, which is why we and others very quickly put on limits on the uh, amount of product that people could buy, individual products, three in most cases or whatever. Um, uh, we were a bit surprised by some of the products that were panic buying on. You know, I don't well, think we anticipated to toilet rolls. <laughs> toilet rolls would be quite as uh, quite as in demand, um, but no, we were, we were we responded very quickly. In, in terms of the you know the the monitoring you do of the the items which are doing well or or less well, mm-hmm. is there anything apart from the loo rolls? Has there been anything that surprised you? Things which have you know have seen sales surge during the, the course of the lockdown? Well, I think you know we have seen um, you know big increases in the ingredients for cooking at home flour, for example, because understandably with a lot of people at home, they're, they're in for more home cooking. So that's predictable. Um, although it was a bit of a surge at the beginning and we've seen less expenditure on things, you know, personal products, toiletries, that sort of thing as people make up cosmetics as people have been going out less, they've perhaps felt less need for that. Uh, but I think the, you know, most of the products that are up are, pretty predictable they are food items that people can use to prepare meals at home which they're obviously they've been doing more of uh, what's been more disruptive because obviously as well as having to deal with the pandemic you've also felt faced uh, uh, brexit as well what impact has that had mm. on you is that more disruption yeah but it's been relatively modest to be honest the uh, uh, we and i'm sure others you know, we built stocks at the end of the year in anticipation there might be disruption. So we were holding additional stock in our warehouses and getting our suppliers to hold additional stock. The biggest thing until now has been Northern Ireland. Some difficulties in getting product through the Republic of Ireland to Northern Ireland because most food flows from across to Dublin and then up to, you know, Belfast and beyond. I think that's being overcome. We've managed to maintain you know, something like 94, 95% availability, even through the worst of that. And it should get better from now on. So, you know, it's required a bit of people being fast on their feet to divert flows to different ports. Um, But we, and I'm sure others, are coping with it. Obviously, we've all, um, first we became experts in sort of transmission and then experts in uh, vaccination rollout and that sort of thing. Logistics has been such a massive part of the last 12 months. Mm. If you had any, and you know, it's something that supermarkets are very good at and getting stuff into the right place at the right time. Um, if you had any conversations with the government about, about that and about the, what the government can learn from the supermarket uh, sector, yeah, I mean, look, we've 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 shared our expertise uh, where we can. Obviously, it's for the government to decide whether or not it wants to take up any of that. I mean, we offered one of our divisions refrigerated vehicles for the distribution of vaccines if they were needed, and that offer stands. But mostly, you know, we've been focused on actually trying to ensure we look after our customers. And if I give you one example, you know, we've doubled the number of home deliveries we do. Understandably, a lot of people have wanted to shop from home. We've gone from 750,000 deliveries a week to 1.5 million. That's involved recruiting another 10,000 delivery drivers and providing them with trucks to deliver. So that's been quite a logistics challenge and that's kept our, our colleagues pretty busy. Uh, James Johnson just touched on a moment ago talking about the, the reaction from uh, customers, voters, pe- you know, people. Um, this question of masks and who should be mm-hmm. wearing a mask and who shouldn't be wearing a mask. What's the current situation in Tesco stores? And would you move to saying you can only come into our store if you've got a mask on? And if you can't or won't wear, wear a mask, then you have to make other arrangements. 
Yeah, that's what we endeavor to do. Look, I went up to a Tesco store on Sunday and I, I approached the front door and I hadn't yet put my mask on and a very charming member of staff said to me, you can't come in without a mask. And I hurriedly reached into my pocket to put it on. Um, so I think mostly that works very well. There are occasionally very difficult customers who have behaved in threatening ways to our staff, spat on them or whatever. Uh, you know, we put more security into a lot of stores to try to deal with that. We'd like the police to make, play a more active role, but we're doing the absolute uttermost that we can to ensure that people wear masks. Now, there are some categories of people with particular clinical conditions who are who don't have to wear masks. And I think if people see others going around stores without masks, it may be not because they're, you know, they're ignoring the regulations, but because they actually have an exemption. But we're doing absolutely everything we can to enforce that. Uh, let's just finally talk about uh, money. All the supermarkets have done very well. I think Tesco's pre-tax profits mm -hmm. up by more than a quarter in the first half of last year. I know lots of the supermarkets have agreed to pay back the business rates because mm -hmm. um, the business rates the relief that the government was getting because you've done well. Do you think that... Um, given the state of the nation's finances, that the supermarkets maybe should pay more tax to try and help help repair the country, having done so well in the past 12 months? Well, you know, we have repaid £585 million of business rates relief, which we were given by the government at the start of the pandemic because we felt that that was the right thing to do, Matt. As a result, we will make less profit this year than we did the previous year, despite having more sales because there's been a whole heap of additional costs. Uh, the only area where we are lobbying the government currently is we think business rates are way too high for retailers generally, um, and they're inequitable vis-a-vis -vis, uh, online retailers. So we propose to government that there should be a reduction in business rates balanced by the introduction of an online sales tax. So from the government's point of view, it would be neutral, but it would push a bit more of the burden onto uh, online retailers. That would have a very marginally positive effect for Tesco, but would help a lot of other retailers, I think. Um, so I hope the government are considering that. They're doing a consultation currently, uh, but we've been pressing them quite hard to, to do so. But other than that, we're very happy to pay our taxes. John Allen, Chairman of Tesco, thanks so much for joining us on Times Radio and talking us through how how Tesco has approached the uh, the pandemic. Up next, we will speak to our retail editor, Ashley Armstrong, and uh, Tom Sass from the Institute for Government about what more uh, we could learn from how supermarkets have reacted to the pandemic in the last 12 months. That's next on Times Radio. Times Radio with Matt Chorley. So, yeah, let's uh, stick with this conversation about supermarkets and this, this polling that they've um, outpolled the NHS in terms of how they've handled the pandemic. Um, let's speak now to our The Times retail editor, Ashley Armstrong. Hi, Ashley. Hi, morning. And uh, we've also got Tom Sass from the Institute for Government. Hi, Tom. Hi, Matt. Uh, so, uh, Ashley, first of all, have you, I mean, you know, you write about retail every day. I always thought that the supermarkets were slightly the baddies, you know, the the big stores coming along, turning our towns into uh, clone towns or whatever, killing off local shops and all that sort of thing. And suddenly we love them. Yeah, it's um, it's been a, a strange turn in, in their reputation, or at least public opinion. I mean, I, I always think of, you know, the kind of Banksy uh, graffiti on, on Tesco, which I think at the time really summed up how, you know, Tesco was seen as this global domineering force ready to squash the little guy. And actually, during this crisis, we've seen how actually heft and scale has proven to, you know, they're all very fond of saying how they stepped up to feed the nation, and that seems to be quite the catchphrase. But they, they have, and by and large, you know, things didn't fall over. 
yes, they've had a phenomenal sales boom because people have been buying a lot more food to eat at home and they're not eating at restaurants and bars. But they've they've handed, most of them have handed back their business rates. And so the money that they are also making, they're doing a lot of work with food banks. They're paying their staff a decent wage now. And I think, I mean, we've just had somebody on Twitter saying that they'd like to tip the supermarket staff. And I just feel like there's been a complete, reversal in how people think about supermarkets during this crisis yeah i mean part, part of me bothers because because it was our only particularly in the first lockdown our only um mm. route out of the house almost uh, and then going there <laughs> and realizing that you know while we all had our masks on and washing our hands and all that other people were working and make literally making sure yeah. we had food to eat that's created a, a you know a connection that maybe wasn't wasn't there before let's bring tom I, in tom what, I, I was struck um just speaking to uh, John Allen there, the chairman of Tesco, he was talking about how actually the supermarkets had stepped forward. They'd offered, he said they'd offered f- freezer lorries, Tesco freezer lorries to get the vaccine across the country. Uh, do you think there, there is something the government can learn from big logistical uh, um, companies like uh, Tesco and supermarkets and that sort of thing in terms of how to do big projects? Yeah, I think it's it's really interesting, Matt. We're only really used to hearing about government procurement when it goes badly wrong, you know, when the government sort of buys a piece of military kit that turns out to be completely useless or spends money on a ferry company with no ferries. But I think in this crisis, we've, we've really seen it in the spotlight from sort of masks, ventilators, PPE, and now, and now vaccines. As you said, sort of procurement and logistics are, are really front and centre in, in how well the response has been going. I mean, listening to John, a couple of things really stood out for me. The sort of, you know, contingency planning and the fact that the supermarkets had in place really robust supply chains that stood up whilst you know all that panic buying was going on and i think that takes an awful lot of planning and resilience and that's something the government might learn from if you think back to some of those early days uh with the sort of ppe crisis although you could say that with the vaccines they've been learning some of those lessons with the sort of amount that was pre-ordered and and, and being manufactured here and then the other big one is, is what you're talking about logistics you know these guys have huge expertise in just moving vast quantities of stuff around the country something which government isn't really that used to doing. We've seen they've brought the army in and we've enjoyed seeing them at the press conferences offering their logistical expertise. But I think, you know, supermarkets do have a real, uh, you know, value to offer as well. Um, Ashley, obviously, and John slightly touched on this about giving back the, the business rates. It's like one point. Mm. Basically, the, just explain what that, what I suppose, because we just started at the beginning, explain what business rates are uh, and yeah. who pays them and then who the, what the government did and then why the supermarkets paid them back. Sure. So, yes, business rates are kind of, they're summed up as the bane of most bricks and mortar retailers' lives. They they bring in something like £32 for the Treasury each year, and it's considered to be quite an archaic tax form because it is based on rent value. So it it only applies to people who have property, and it's meant to be based on how much rent you pay. So if you've got a large prime state, then you'll be paying higher business rates. So it's meant to... Uh, meant to kind of tally with that, except it doesn't because uh, the rent rate system has been so outdated that it hasn't been reflected, reflecting uh, rental values for the last five years. So while we've had rents falling, particularly in the crisis, rates are still, um, should be still very high. Um, and also it hasn't reflected this massive shift of online. So 
people's shops are less profitable because a lot more shopping is transferring online. Now, during the crisis, the government kind of realised this and also the fact that forced lockdowns meant that the shops weren't opening, so they weren't making any money. So for the year, it was meant to be, actually, it was extended, um, they gave business rates relief. And that was meant to help support the retail economy. And at the time, it was sort of celebrated. And then during the summer, you could say, people were saying, well, why are the supermarkets still (laughs) benefiting from hundreds of millions of pounds worth of taxpayer support when they're absolutely coining it in because they're having queues of people outside and their sales are rising and they're going to be making higher profits whilst we're all shut. So (laughs) there is this mounting pressure for the supermarkets and other lockdown winners like B&M Bargains and um, Pets at Home and the DIY chains who are all enjoying soaring sales in the crisis to hand back some of that business rates relief. And Tesco actually kicked it off. Um, by saying that they would hand it back. And all of the grocers have now followed, with the exception of Waitrose, Co-op and Iceland and m uh, Yeah, so there's Asda, Aldi, Tesco, Morrison, Sainsbury's all pledging to repay £1.7 billion, which is yes. no, you know, no small... No, no, no a, a chunky amount back. Ashley, we, I can't have you on as the retail editor and not talk about more generally about what's happening in retail. We've obviously seen what's happened with Debenhams, uh, and uh, Topshop, you know, the names are being bought, the websites are being yeah. bought, but not the shops. Um, yeah. What will happen to, uh, you know, the, what do you think the retail landscape will look like as we sort of emerge from this? We all love our supermarkets, but they might be the only sh- sort of physical shop left by the end of all this. Yeah, yeah it's, I mean, it, it, is, it is definitely a moment. I mean, I described it yesterday as Darwinian, but we've also had, you know, the changing of the garden. And you are seeing that shift of those old names. It, I think it is important to say that the names like Debenhams and Arcadia, uh, that are falling away. They were struggling before the crisis. They were seen as outdated before the crisis, before COVID happened. This has accelerated it. What's interesting is, though, that those online brands, ASOS and Boohoo, are snapping them up, and you're going to see these household, old-fashioned names only live on online. And I think that's, that trend is going to continue. You see the likes of JD Sports saying that they're going to be raising cash to help fund further acquisitions. Next is also, you know, that they were looking at doing the Arcadia transaction and they've got very strong balance sheets. So, you know, those ones that have survived during the crisis and have weathered the storm, they're going to be picking up even more of the casualties, but definitely not the the shops that are on struggling high streets, the shops that have been underinvested, the shops that have been loss-making. It's going to be a real brutal shake-up for the sector. But hopefully we will see the high street kind of evolve in a way that will have a high street that maybe shoppers deserve in the fact that you know they'll be better serving the community rather than a cloned shop that has exactly the same as a private equity owner thought has opened in 20 other towns and will fit. Hopefully we'll see a bit more originality in retail. Well, that's it for this episode of Red Box. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Maybe even leave us a rating because it helps with the mumbo-jumbo charts. We release an episode every day, Monday to Thursday, featuring the best bits of my Times Radio show. You can listen to the whole thing uh, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. It's available on DAB, online, via Smart Speaker or on the Times Radio app. If you want to read more about all of the stories we've been discussing, then go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. 